This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. So here's a number for you, £397,579,557 and two pence. A little bit out of nowhere perhaps, but that number is the total of all the transfers that have broken Manchester City's own record. Of course, it's only a loose estimate because we're not accounting for inflation or even a switch to decimalised currency in 1971, but it gives you an idea of the records that the club has broken, especially in more recent years. Welcome to this week's Blue Moon Podcast, where we're on a little bit of a City history lesson, as we're going to track the progression of the club's transfer record through the years. What pressure comes with being the most expensive footballer at a club? How easy is it to settle in when the club hasn't spent that much money on a player before. We'll hear from some of the players that have broken the record at City down the years later on in the show. I'm your host David Mooney and with me is football historian and City fan Dr Gary James. Gary, hi. Hi. How are you doing? Yeah, not so bad. Good to hear, good to hear. Um, well, I said in the introduction there that, that City have spent nearly £400 million breaking their own transfer record down the years. Um, obviously, the majority of that's been in recent seasons where fees in the game have gone through the roof and then a, a little bit more as well. Um, and City fans often get frustrated with the tag of money bags to City because there's a lot more to the club than just having a rich owner than you know in the last decade or so. Uh, but let's just have a quick look at how often City have broken their own transfer record. Um the club has broken their own record 29 times since the first recorded transfer in, in 1896. That was the two-pence signing of John Gunn from uh, Bolton Wanderers. Is that still true? Have, have we found anything else that's that's older than that? Oh, it, well, it's really difficult with uh, some of the early transfers because, for example, uh, when City signed Billy Meredith in 1894, they had to buy drinks for all his, his friends and virtually everybody in, in the village of Chirk where he lived. So that's not officially a transfer fee, but Without doing that, they wouldn't. We would never have got him. So it's, it's difficult. But you know, and also some of those early transfers, City would just either compensate the club a little bit, or they might sometimes agree to play play like a game or something. Um, so they weren't transfer fees were not sort of recorded in the way that they are today. Particularly, it was just uh, if something was noteworthy, it got in the, it got into the newspapers, or, or City made a bit, a bit of a song and dance about it. But but usually. Uh, it's impossible to sort of say what what changed hands. Yeah, well, it uh, it might surprise you that uh, only seven of the of, of the transfers that have broken City's record have come under Sheikh Mansour's ownership. Um, the manager that's done it most has been Pep Guardiola. He's he, he spent sixty two point eight million on Rodri most recently, uh, Mares sixty million, Laporte fifty seven million. Uh, Pellegrini did it twice. He brought in De Bruyne for 54 million and Sterling, which was uh, 44 million, rising to 49 based on appearances. Um, Mancini did it as well once. He brought in Sergio Aguero for 38 million. Uh, Mark Hughes did it once in the Mansour era uh, to bring in uh, Rubinho for 32.5 million. And technically, Joe as well, although I'm not, I'm never sure if Joe was brought in as a Sven signing or as a Hughes signing. So I, I'm not sure who to give that one to. Either way, it was before the um, the, the 2008 takeover. Um, Gary, City are often referred to these days as uh, as mega rich, that sort of thing. Um, how easy has it been for them to spend money down the years? Because obviously it's been it's, it's easier than ever now, but what was it like in the past? City were always one of the big spenders. I think uh, the, the time that they stopped spending was after, well, at the start of the 80s, you know, they were the first team to have bought three one, separate £1 million players. Um, 
And then they didn't really spend then until the end of the 80s when they signed Clive Allen for a million. Um, and then after that, in the 90s, obviously, we, you know, Keith Curl and Terry Feeling and so on. Um, but but City, whether it was in the 1950s or even the 1930s, they quite often would stun football a little bit by, by signing a player for either a record transfer fee nationally or a figure that was only a few pounds short of the national record, if you like. Um, and I think that's because this club was really a profitable club for most of its existence. It sort of changed during the Peter Swales era. But City were paying dividends to shareholders into the 70s. They were they were a profitable club into the 70s and so could afford to spend on on, on big, big name players or players that they felt were worth a, a, a huge transfer fee. So it's it, it sort of fell away in the eighties and nineties because uh, because of a financial situation, and then of course in the early two thousands we'd lost pace with um, the, the likes of Chelsea and United and so on. But but you know then it, it reemerged in the in the sort of uh, taxing and then Sheikh Mansour era. In terms of chairman as well, you, you mentioned Peter Swales there. How 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 easy or hard was it to get chair, different chairmen to, to spend some money? How did Peter Swales feel about spending money in, in different eras during his, his chairmanship? Swales spent like crazy at times. I mean, it, it, I interviewed him once uh, and he said one of his biggest problems was he always backed the manager. And so if a manager said, I want to go and buy such and such a body and it's going to cost us a million pounds... Swales would say, well, let's buy him. Um, and I think that's one of the, the issues, really. Perhaps sometimes he shouldn't have backed his managers in the way. Swales, I, you know, I'm one, I, I'm one of the biggest critics of, of Peter Swales. But to be fair, when it came to backing his managers in the 70s up until the, the early 80s, he always did it. He always found money from somewhere. Um, but in the end, he found the money by putting the club into serious debt. Which then jeopardised the future of the club. So, so that was the the, the wrongdoing, if you will, the, the sort of fail, if you like. Um, but in the seventies, you know, when City signed Dennis Stewart, for example, it was Swales who who backed the manager there and, and did it, uh, and that's that's the same all the way through. Yeah, it's it's funny as well because I, I mentioned all those big transfers of the Mansour era at, at the start of the show. Um, it, it's probably a different system these days as well because I, th- I think pretty much all of them were signed by a director of football in either Chiki Bagheristan or um, Brian Marwood in, back in Mancini's time. Um, do you think managers have, have got a lot less control now over, over the, the actual spending of the money than they used to, haven't they? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, and I think that's, that's right to some extent. I think the future of a club can rest on the signing of a, a very expensive player. You know, if, you, if, if a very expensive player fails, it's a li- I know it's a little bit different now because of the, the finance that City have, if you like. But but typically, if, a, if an expensive signing fails, that could put, set the club back a number of years because it might be that you then can't sell that player on so you're not going to recoup the money and you, you put yourself in a precarious situation. And yet the life of a manager, as we know, can be short. So if you're a manager who buys the wrong players and you're only there for a year and you put you end up your purchases end up putting that club in serious financial trouble, you're off. Whereas now a director of football is likely to still be there and they so they need to think about that long term planning. And you know, you mentioned Brian Marwood and, and Marwood certainly did an incredible job. He got a lot of criticism um, from fans because we didn't always sign players that we felt we should have signed and and I, I can understand that, but one thing to bear in mind is that at the time, 
Brian Marwood was doing that job. City were known as an extremely wealthy club who were desperate to buy quality players. And so the price of every single player that City went for rocketed. You know, we paid money for players, more money for players than, than we should have done. And it was because everybody knew we had the money and we, we were we were starting from a lower base than the others. So we needed to spend that money to bring in the best the, the best players. And so, you know, when, when he pulled some, some of the signings off that he did pull off, they were remarkable really in the face of all the other issues. Yeah, I was going to say, in terms of of that, how important is it now, do you think, that City don't just bend to other clubs' will and, and accept whatever you know they demand in terms of a transfer fee? I, I think it's absolutely uh, essential. And I think Brian Mauer tried to do that um, and did do that at, at times, which is why we didn't sign some of those players that people probably thought we should have signed. But, but ultimately, OK, maybe we could have won certain trophies that we haven't won or, or whatever. Um but that's not down to not signing one player. That's down to other issues that, that may have happened over the last decade. Um, but I think if 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 City paid over the odds for a player, then I think that would be bad for us and, and bad for football in general. I mean, you, you can sort of see whenever a club's taken over or find, suddenly finds itself in a position where it's been promoted and it, it wants to stabilise... They will spend more money than they, than perhaps they should just to keep that position because people know they're they're desperate. We can get more money out of them. So if you're signing a, an average player, the value can rocket by several million pounds just because the team's desperate to either achieve success or to avoid relegation. Yeah. Well, we said earlier on in the show that the uh, first recorded transfer fee to City was uh, John Gunn from Bolton Wanderers in 1896. Uh, he moved across Lancashire for two pence. I put that into an inflation calculator online, uh, and it reckons that would have been about two pounds sixty-eight in today's money. Um, <laughs> I, I, you were talking about the complex nature of transfers back then, uh, Gary. How how unusual were transfers between clubs at, at, at that stage? Is it was it was it a case of of players just moving clubs and there was no transfer fee, and it kind of gradually was introduced? Or well, yeah, I mean, players. It took it took a bit of time, really. Players were sort of induced to sign for clubs, so players quite often got the benefit. That was often against football league or FA rules, if you like. But but players would be encouraged to sign for a team and so on. Um, transfer fees became more significant once you know the, the league system had two divisions and and there was a real competition for places and so on but typically you would still only move within a, a region it'd be very rare for somebody to to move from say manchester to london or, or whatever the only exception to that quite often would be if there was a, a sort of family connection in some way and somebody wanted to move because of other family members in that in that region so when you look at some of the transfers you know sometimes there is this this family connection that makes the, the transfer from a, a from a London team to a Manchester team happen, not the financial aspect to it. Um, but transfer fees started to really sort of increase in value uh, during the, the sort of early 1900s, and then obviously, well, they've never stopped increasing in value, have they? <laughs> well, let's. I mean, let's look at those uh, through the 1900s because uh, after that John Gunn transfer, City City paid 250 pounds for Scottish forward Joe Cassidy from Newton Heath. Uh, Newton Heath quite famously would go on to become Manchester United, um, which is it's it's the only transfer I can find that broke the record where it was a, a, effectively a, a United to City transfer. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Joe Cassidy had quite a sad story in the end. He, he suffered with uh, mental health issues and 
and ended up in an asylum actually. But um, that was remarkable at that time. That transfer. Um, the other aspects. To, there are other aspects to that. And one of the things that could happen, and I'm not saying it definitely happened in this case, but but I think it probably did, is that City and Newton Heath were close um, in terms of the way that you know the management, the the directorship, and so on were, were very close. And quite often, um, a wealthy football club would help its near neighbour. And I'm not saying that's exactly what happened in this case, but. City knew that you and East were struggling around that time. And so if you're going to choose a place for your player to go to, when to save him the problems of moving, to save him all the others, you're going to choose your near neighbour. And if and as the one buying him, you may say, well, we'll pay you a little bit extra because we're a profitable football club and you're struggling. Because keeping City and Newton Eve or City and United as it became, both in the league, was of significant importance to both teams. City always wanted United to be in that league. And so by giving them a transfer fee for a player, it would it would be significant. It would, it would yeah, give them that kind of that, that footing to be able to, to stay. And 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 years later actually, I, Eric Alexander told me this was more about transfers in the in the sixties and seventies. But he also said that um there's no coincidence that the transfer the going in the sort of sixteen seventies, the transfer deadline day was in March, the end of March. No coincidence that that's just before the the tax year end. And clubs would help each other out. If one was showing a large profit and another one perhaps wasn't, then clubs would help each other out by one would transfer a player to the other for for a decent transfer fee so that they wouldn't have to pay as much tax. <laughs> and, and he was absolutely adamant. He said, as far as we were concerned, the money had to stay in football. That, and, that does not sound like biz, big business to me, Gary. That's, <laughs> that doesn't sound like the sort of thing that they would do. <laughs> but but it, just, it just shows you. And he says, sometimes you can sort of see this because a player might go to a club, it might, and then suddenly after the, you know, once you, the transfer window's open, they might come back. And he, and he said, well, sometimes it was all prearranged, <laughs> you know. Amazing. The next time City broke the, the, the record was uh, was four years later in uh, in 1904. They brought in Irvine Thornley from Glossop North End. It's still uh, a local transfer, uh, but in terms of, of uh, to get a, a kind of a, a, a head on how the value of transfers had gone up uh, from that two pence that worked out at about two pounds 68, you know, about 10 years earlier, um, that four fifty in modern money would work out at about 55,000 pounds. So suddenly these, these, these fees have, have gone, you know, skyrocketed, but as you say, it's still local. It is still local, but the, the Farnley one was an interesting one because that caused city real problems in the end. Um, Farnley, his family owned a, a butchery business in Glossop. And so he was playing for Glossop and he signed for City and for £450. But it ended up that he, you know, and it's not far from Glossop to, to Ardwick where, where City were playing, but he ended up moving to Ardwick because, it, you know, in terms of travel, it was easier. Um, so he's living in Ardwick. The butchery business then is, is suffering a bit because he's they've got to employ different people or whatever you've got to do. And it ended up that City paid an illegal payment to Glossop and to sort of Farnley. You know, they paid him a, a, a bit extra, basically, um, at this transfer to convince him to give up the butchery business and to sign full-time for Manchester City. So City sort of broke the FA rules at the time. Um, so even though it's £450, it's actually 
it's more than that, really. And I think they estimated that City had spent something like £600 was more of a true sort of figure in the compensation to Glossop and the, that, that went sort of under the counter, if you like, and the, the money that went to Farnley. And, and it ended up that this was part of the later investigations which sort of decimated the club um, a couple of years later. In, the, in, the, um, in the, that transfer scandal. Yeah, it's, it's part of that. But Farnley was the first one that, when he was transferred, which was before City had, uh, well, yeah, it was around the time City had won the FA Cup, but he wasn't part of that team. But when Farnley was transferred, that was the first one that sort of made the FA sort of sit up and take notice. And the summer after he, he was transferred, they started investigating City. They stopped the investigations, and a year later, they, they started them up again. But Farnley was part of that. I think, I think that's sort of where suddenly, a bit like some of the other transfers that happened over the years, suddenly a transfer attracts attention that perhaps the club doesn't necessarily want. And they certainly didn't want the FA to start looking into their affairs at that point, um, which unfortunately they did. Yeah, well, let's, let's look at, at the next kind of uh, milestones because, um, you know, it, it's only a decade on from that, that two pence signing where, you know, City are signing David Ross from Norwich uh, in February 1907. That was for £1,200. Uh, it was the first transfer that was over a grand and it w- would work out about 145000 today. Uh, Tommy Browell was the next record breaker for £1,800 in uh, October 1913. Uh, but the name that springs out to me in the next kind of set, Gary, is the uh, is the £2,500 edition of Horace Barnes from Derby in May 1914. Um, who was Horace Barnes? Oh, well, Horace Barnes was a, a fantastic uh, goal scorer, really. He'd, he'd played for um, Derby County for about six years, something like that, um, and had really made his name because he, was, he scored an incredible amount of goals uh, I think at, at Derby he scored about 70 goals in about 150 appearances so it's sort of one every two games which you know might not, might not sound great compared to Aguero perhaps but it was a, a, a great ratio at the time I've got a feeling you know that's about the same ratio as Sean Gota so as close yeah, exactly. go yeah exactly it is now what one of the reasons why he moved and even moving from Derby to Manchester was still quite a, a significant move really um, but one of the reasons he moved was that his girlfriend was actually from Manchester so that was probably the reason why he chose City other than some of the other clubs that he could have gone to um, so he came to he came to City and he, he, he was incredible really you know he scored in his debut and I think he continued to average a, a goal every other game uh, uh, yeah every other game and over in the war I mean this was the big issue for him he lost a lot of his career because of World War One, um, and obviously he, he himself couldn't play that many games because I think he certainly had to do some uh, military service. I uh, off the top of my head, I can't think where that was now, but he had to do some military service. I've got a but, feeling he was in a munitions factory. And yeah. one, one of the one of the things I was reading uh, recently said he was in a munitions factory, but I, that's about all I've got. Yeah, he probably was, but he scored something like a goal a game during the war. He only played about 75, 76 games, something like that, but he scored about a goal a game. And, you know, he, he was a, a really hero to City fans. Um, and I think, well, years later, when they were naming the streets after City players in Moss Side, he was one of the players that fans voted for, even though, you know, he lost a substantial chunk of his career to World War One. He stayed with City until, I think it was 19... Yeah, about 1924, something like that. Um, had a spell at Preston, had a spell at Oldham. Um, but then ultimately he was playing for a team in Ashton when he got injured and that was the end of his career, really. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was also reading as well, he scored the first ever goal at Main Road. Yes, he, he did actually, yeah. And, you know, the thing about Oris Barnes, and to be fair, Irving Farnley before that, they really were um, 
significant transfers from a national point of view, not just from a Manchester point of view. You know, they were really something that, well, I suppose nationally people started to look at City and think, where are they getting this money from? What's what's happening? You know. Yeah. Uh, would you? I mean, I, I assume it goes down even in the even in the records of of the players that City have got today. You must go down as one of the club's greatest ever. Yes, I think I think you've got to do. I mean, it's a, it's a real shame those years were lost to the wall because his stats, you know, at the end of the day, he scored, I think it was 120 goals in around about 220, 230 appearances, something like that. So his stats are, are not the best. You know, if you added on the war time, you're talking about over 300 appearances um, and that would have put him into a different level. So his name gets forgotten. But then, you know, up until Aguero started scoring other goals, people had forgotten names like Eric Brook as well, to be fair. Um, but yeah, Alice Barnes was was certainly a major a major star. Well, uh, a couple of signings were then made for under ten grand. As City kept breaking their transfer record for players like Frank Roberts from Bolton and Jimmy McMullen from uh, Partick Thistle. Uh, but it was the signing of Peter Doherty from Blackpool for ten thousand pounds in nineteen thirty six. That was the next real milestone. It's the next one to add another zero to the uh, to, to the to the list. Um, that would equal just over £700,000 in today's money. Uh, but the next name that, that stands out, again, is another club legend, is uh, is Roy Paul, uh, signed in 1950 for £25,000. Uh, Gary, just give us a, a little bit of a background to who Roy Paul uh, was and, and kind of what he did for City. He was, I mean, for many years he was regarded as, well, when you talk about great captains, there was sort of Bill and Meredith who was regarded as a great captain in the early years of a club. And then the next great one, I suppose, would have been Sam Barkas, who led the league title success in 37. And then Roy Paul. And Roy Paul was a bit of a, a tough sort of <laughs> a tough a tough guy really. Um he you know, memorably he um played in the cup finals of fifty five and fifty six. Um but I think Part of the time, it was his physical force that that sort of pushed City over the line in games, and a bit like you know when when Vincent Company delivers some did or did deliver something that was um, match saving or match winning or whatever. I think Roy Paul had the same force of personality. He may not have scored the memorable goals or anything like that. Far from it. You know, he wasn't a goal scorer for the start, but he was the sort of player that when the chips were down, he he, he would. He would deliver. And... Well, let, let me just give you a little quote that I've got from him. Uh, this was from when he was captain on uh, the 1955 uh, Cup final, which City lost to Newcastle. Uh, City conceded quite early on. I think at that stage as well, they lost a man as well, didn't they? There was no substitute. Yes. They, they lost a player to injury. Jimmy Meadows quite early on, really. And, and that's what, what why City lost that game. So they, they, were, they were playing with 10 men for, for, yeah, for most, for of, most of the game. Um, and there's a quote from him that, that uh, where he's he talking about that game. He says, like certain generals, I believe that in dire emergency, it's often better to attack. I clapped my hands and I yelled, let's show these Geordies the stuff that's taken us to Wembley. And then City went on to equalise, uh, uh, make it 1-1. And then uh, they, uh, they kind of like they just couldn't, the 10 men couldn't do enough and ended up losing 3-1. Yeah, I think um, there would probably have been a few expletives in that as well. <laughs> but, but certainly... But even years later, that final was talked about, and I know people talk about the Troutman final the year after, but that 55 final was talked about for City's performance. And in one of the, I've got an old football annual somewhere, and it talks about City being the team of the year because they lost that final in, in such a, a, an incredible way, really. They came close, you know, they came close to, to sort of uh, getting back in the game. But that injury, you know, for, for most of the game, they're playing with 10 men. 
um, and the, they matched Newcastle all the way through. But you know we were already losing, so they just couldn't get back. Couldn't get back. How influential was was Roy Paul in in the Revy plan? Because um, it was that team that that developed the Revy plan. I'm I'm not really sure what the Revy plan was. Yeah, well, um, I mean, basically, it, it, it sounds simple in today's terms, but the number nine would play in a much deeper role, right? Much sort of more of a midfield sort of role, um, which at that time completely stunned everybody, right? Um, because people play a traditional format where, you know, if you're number nine, you have a centre-forward and you will be play in a centre-forward position and you will be marked by, you know, and, and so on. You know, every every position would be as laid out in, you know, whatever football manuals existed at the time. So this, the Revy plan stunned people because... Don Levy, who was the, the number nine, was was sort of way back, really. Um, and the way they did it, they, they'd sort of... He wouldn't be marked in the way that he should be marked because the player who should be marking him is thinking, well, where's, where's the, where is this number nine and where's, what's going on? And, and basically, um, the ball would get... Ken Barnes would get hold of the ball and Don Levy would make a run and Ken Barnes would give the ball to Don Levy and, and then, you know, they'd, they'd score a goal, more or less. Right? But it completely... I suppose completely thwarted the opposition in some way. You know, it was one of those things that completely stunned them. And it sounds so simple. You know, we've got false number nines now and it's the same, it's similar sort of idea, really. It's the same, similar sort of idea. Um, but the Revy plan had started in the reserves. Um, Roy Paul played a part in in open to convince Les McDowell that it, they should use the Revy plan. The Revy plan was not invented by Don Revy. He just happened to be the number nine. It was actually in the reserves, um, and Ken Barnes and, was in the reserves at the time, and Johnny Williamson, and the coach was Fred Tilson from the 1920s. And sort of between them, they developed this plan, this idea, um, and it worked in the reserves. They tried it in the first team and it failed. They then took Ken Barnes out of the reserves and put Ken Barnes into the first team and suddenly it worked. And that was the difference. And, you know, like City City played United uh, in the, that sort of period, that season, in fact, um, and beat United uh, three times. It's some, the, score was, uh, in, the aggregate score was something like 10-1 over three games, something like that. I can't, can't remember the specifics. Um but United were the Busby Babes, who was supposed to be the greatest team on the planet at the time. And every single time, City humiliated them, you know, by playing this Revy plan. But, yeah. but even these, even these great, even this great tactician Matt Busby and even these great players could not, could not overcome. Yeah, um, we sh- you mentioned it as well. We we should talk about uh, briefly the Burt Trotman final in in 1956, which obviously went on to to Roy Paul lifting the trophy. Yeah, and Roy Paul, at half time, he dressed to me, he sort of made him all have a glass of whiskey and stuff like that. You know, he, he, he <laughs> the force of his personality. And he he was very much a sort of player. I mean, he'd led by example. And he was a, a pretty, you know, he's from South Wales. He was a pretty tough sort of guy. Um, but he was, for City at that time, he was a perfect captain. Quite sad in the end. Well, not I don't know if it's sad or what, but, uh, you know, back then, when a footballer's career finished, they had to get a normal job, and he ended up a lorry driver in, in back in South Wales. That was his job. And you think if you've captained your team to major success, you sort of, you know, you wish it was like today. You wish that every single one of those great players could enjoy the life that perhaps modern day stars are going to enjoy, but sadly, you know, they, they couldn't. Yeah. 
Uh, well, the next transfer to break the record was when City brought in Dennis Law from Huddersfield in, in March 1960. Uh, the £55,000 paid uh, was the first time that City also broke the British transfer record. And Sam Roscoe spoke to Dennis Law a few years ago where he found out that City was an unexpected destination for him. Well, of course, Bill Shankly was uh, the manager at Huddersfield and he had just gone to Liverpool. So when I thought that uh, they were coming in, I thought I would be going uh, to Liverpool, really. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the fee was just a bit too high, uh, so I went to Manchester City. So, uh, yeah, I could have been a Liverpool player. Yeah, I would have. I would have gone to. Bill uh, Shankly was like a father to me. He looked after me for four or five years, so he was. He was like an, a father. So, I was. Uh, I was a bit disappointed at the time, not to go there because he was a great manager anyway, and of course. You know what uh, he did to Liverpool, took him from the second division right through until all the honours. So, yeah. But the great rivalry between City and Liverpool and, of course, Manchester United as well. Now, you signed for a British transfer record. How much pressure did that put on you? Oh, very much, yeah. And uh, at that particular time, uh, it was it seemed huge. Um, nowadays, it's probably one day's wages for some of the players. Uh, so yeah, you had to. Uh, I don't know. It was, the pressure was tremendous. Yeah, you know, because well, paying a lot of money for that. Well, look at him; he's useless or whatever. So yeah, but I enjoyed playing. So. And football around that time was changing, like you mentioned. Player wages were, were going up. Um, you moved from City after a one one year to Torino. Yes. What What made you move to Italy? Uh, being Scottish, it was the money. I don't forget the maximum wage was £20 a week here. So the, the money. And although I didn't particularly like it over there, I did like a lot of things as well. You know, I was going to a foreign country because nowadays people go anywhere, don't they? But uh, then, you know, the, and I, and Italy always, uh, you know, you could imagine there's a lovely sunshine and what. Little did I realise that Turin was near the Alps. <laughs> And we had a foot of snow uh, in November, so that was a bit disappointed as well. But I, the fact, I, I never regretted going because I learned so much uh, on the football pitch as well because it was very defensive over there and you basically had two guys marking you. And I was with a guy from uh, uh, Joe Baker who came from him, so there were two of us there. So we were severe, you know, really tightly marked. Uh, which was unusual for us. So when we came back eventually to, you know, to England, I, I felt in the game that nobody was marking me at all. Although somebody was marking me, but the fact that I'd been, have, you know, to look after two people, uh, it was right. So I learned a great deal as well. But I learned a great deal as well. The Italian people were lovely. Food was lovely. The ladies were nice because I was a single boy. Uh, so everything was nice. Just unfortunately, the football was not very good. Please give us your backing. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Dennis Law speaking to Sam Roscoe. Um, I mean, obviously, Gary, Dennis Law more famous for being a United player than a City player, but he had a, he had a, a, a kind of a big place in City's history at that time as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the sad part was that, that City just couldn't really afford to keep him. They spent the money on him, and they could afford to spend the money then. 
But that team that he joined, which was sort of 19, well, 1959-60 sort of season, um, that team was, um, the, it was the sort of tail end of a mid-50s great team, the cup winning team. And it wasn't quite yet at the stage where it was the team that was going to, you know, sort of develop under Merson Allison. So players like Alan Oates were starting to, were on the fringes of appearing and so on. But it, the rest of the team really didn't match Dennis Law, you know, because either they were ageing players or they were just weren't of the right standard, really. And so at the end of, uh, what was it, it was 61, June 61, I think it was, um, they transferred him to Turin, to Torino, um, and that was for a British record transfer fee again. It was £100,000 then, I think it was. Um, but he, he, that's, none of this should downplay that it was City that sort of helped his career develop. That Whilst that City, he, he, he sort of shone and he was, at, you know, he's certainly our star player at the time. And I know people quite often know Dennis Law, you know, United man who came, who came to City at the end of his career on a free transfer. But that downplays this period before that when he was a star and he would he would definitely have been with City all the way through if, if we'd have had a team to match. You know, if he'd have if he'd have arrived instead when Mercer and Allison were, were in charge of a club, then you'd be talking about Dennis Law, this fantastic City hero now. But instead he, he was there at his, at the tail end of the fifties the successful fifties team that was breaking up and, and all getting to a certain age where they couldn't really deliver what they delivered before. So it's a bit sad really, but he was certainly a blue. Yeah. Um, a little bit of trivia for you now. Um, do you know who City's last pre-decimalisation uh, record signing was? Who the, the last player they brought in for a record fee before the country went decimal? A record fee? Well, so it was 71 that went decimal. So before that, you're talking about a transfer. Ooh, so it's got to be a big transfer in the Mercer Allison years. It is. Um, well, well, the, big, the, the, the two sort of biggest transfers in that era would have been... Ah, I've got it. Yeah, so... There would have been Colin Bell, but then Francis Lee. Francis Lee, sixty thousand pounds from Bolton. That was the one, yeah. There's there's a generation who don't know him as a player. I know, and that's quite sad because he was <laughs> he was a better player than chairman. Um, <laughs> but no, it is quite sad really because he was he was a he's a World Cup star. You know, he was a big a big name, Francis Lee. And when he signed for City, he'd already made his name at Bolton, and at, and at Bolton, he'd, he'd he'd fallen out with the club and fallen out with the manager, and he basically said, "That's it. I'm not I'm not playing football again. I'm packing it in." Because this is the thing that, about Francis Lee: if if he doesn't, if he no longer feels able to do something, he'll just stop doing it. Right? That's it. He'll stop, um, and he stopped playing for Bolton. And it and Joe Mercer managed to sort of persuade him to to come to City and and sort of come out of this self-imposed sort of. Uh, it's wrong to say retirement, but it was in a, he wasn't playing. Right? Semi retirement, sort of this. Semi-retirement, if you like, um, and come to City, and it ended up that there's loads of problems with transfer. It just, it almost didn't happen. Bolton wanted more money, and obviously, in the end, it becomes this, this City record. Um, and he signed on the 9th of October '67. It was a major signing. I was going to say, how how important was he to City? Absolutely vital. I mean, I, I, I've not got the, the the results in front of me, but if you look about 1967-68 season, before Francis Lee signed, City. We're doing okay, but we're not going to win the title. Once he signed, it changed. He, he, Joe Mercer said years later that Francis Lee was the final piece of the jigsaw. And he certainly was. When you look at it, before Friendly League, we're not going to win the league. After Friendly League, we win the league. 
And then, of course, you've got to think about the goals that he contributed in the years that followed. Um, you know, the, the Cup Winners' Cup final. Uh, he scored one of the. I know. You know, we can talk about penalties because Franny Lee became famous for his penalties. But, but you know, Franny Lee uh, scores in the Cup Winners' Cup final. He is the League Cup final in 1970. It was supposedly Francis Lee's greatest ever game. He went to the World Cup in 1970. Uh, he was a major star. And then, in what was it, 74. He he's basically told by City he's not really wanted anymore, so he goes off. And he again he's gonna he's gonna pack in football. In seventy four he's gonna pack in football, but he ends up he goes to Derby County and the only reason he went to Derby County really was because he knew that it was within travelling distance of his business because he he'd set up his paper company then which made makes toilet rolls, but basically it was um sort of recycling paper, which was revolutionary for a period. Um and he goes to sign for Derby County, and then of course he ends up winning the title at Derby County. Yeah, yeah. He was, a, he was a massive. He was a massive player for City. An I... Incredible star. You know, people talk about Colin Bell as being a great player, and he was a great player. And um, people talk about Bell Lee Summerbeck, but Francis Lee was the one who probably was at the time he was playing was no more. I, he was he was the bigger name. I remember I was in. Um, I think it was in Germany, actually, and I picked up... I always do this when I'm in a, a, another country. I, I go to a book, the local bookshop and I pick up their sort of history of football book, whatever that may be, right? Um, and obviously in German or French or whichever country it's in. And I remember picking one of these up in Germany and opening it to the index and the only Manchester City player that was covered at all in this German encyclopedia was Francis Lee, and that includes Trout. You know, Troutman wasn't in there, uh, uh, Colin Bell, or anyone. It was only Francis Lee, which and so then I turned to a page, and there was a profile of him, and I think that shows that he was regarded as an incredible player at the time. But we've we sort of tended to forget that because we we focus more on his years as a chairman. Yeah, I was going to say in terms of of a chairman as well. Um, he he also uh, led to the uh, a record breaking signing. Do you know who was the only record breaking transfer while he was chairman? Oh. Um. Ah. Uh, so Alan Ball would have been. It's. it's ooh, oh. Yes. <laughs> is it Lee Bradbury? It is Lee Bradbury. He. Uh, he's the only uh, City record transfer who was signed by a, a a chairman who was a record transfer as well. I came close to saying Martin Buster Phillips then because uh, Alan Ball said he would be the first ten million pound transfer, which of course he never was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah yeah Lee Bradbury. Oh God. Well, uh, we'll we'll come back to him a bit later on. Uh, but first, Rodney Marsh was the first post decimalisation record signing. Uh, he was two hundred grand from QPR. Um, was he was he honestly a disruption to that that city team? I, no, I I've got to declare an interest here because Rodney, I, my earliest sort of memory of being at City at Main Road was Rodney Marsh's debut, and I I loved Rodney Marsh. I was too young to know anything about the way he played football, but I just liked his flamboyance, I guess. Um, but obviously, doing research on it and talking to people, I think the bottom line is bringing in a player and putting him straight into the team was a mistake. But, had they not done that, well, the, the, the argument is that he disrupted the team. And, I don't think you can blame Rodney Marsh himself. You can blame Malcolm Allison for, for, for the, 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 the changes and, and the team selections and so on. But, I don't, I don't think you can blame the player. Um, I mean, if you... He scored. I mean, he scored some important goals that year. He definitely scored some important goals. But hmm, it's a tricky one. My dad, 
would would absolutely go mad about Nadi Marsh. He was absolutely adamant that he was definitely the man who cost us the league title. And then it gets worse because in 74, when it's the League Cup final, Rodney Marsh blames himself for losing the League Cup final. So suddenly, you know, as far as my dad's dad and perhaps his generation are concerned, Rodney Marsh cost City the league title and then cost City the League Cup in 74. Um, but for me, I just, I just, he was just a hero to me. Um, Having said that, some of the stuff I've researched since <laughs> suggests I'm fool- I was foolish. But, but yeah, <laughs> he, uh, he, he, it's it's difficult. It really is difficult because it's so easy. It's like you know, if you talk about um, Carlos Tevez when he, you know, he had that problem against Munich and then he plays his part in City winning the league. For some people, when Carlos Tevez was brought back into that City team in 2012, people were saying he should never wear a City shirt again. He should not play. And yeah, the goals he contributed then won us the league. But Carlos Tevez never won us the league. Just like in the end, Aguero's goal didn't actually win City the league. It was, you know, the points accrued in all those games that season. So when something goes wrong, it's very easy to blame a player like Robbie Marsh. But was it Marsh really? You know, I don't, I don't know. Well, let's uh, let's move forward to March uh, '74 because City paid two hundred and seventy-five thousand pounds to Sunderland for the services of Dennis Stewart. He was one of Ron Saunders' final signings at Main Road, and he spoke to me in 2011 about making that move to City. Well, at that time, you know, coming from um, from Newcastle, City had been from I think '69 to '71. They'd virtually won everything: um, the league, the FA Cup, the Cup Winners' Cup, and the League Cup. You know, so they won virtually all the domestic trophies and, and the, uh, the Cup Winners' Cup as well. So, uh, And Lee Belsonby was tantamount comparison with, with uh, uh, Law Best and Charlton at Man United. And Manchester, from my perception, living up the northeast, was the centre of football. And certainly City, uh, after United's 68 European Cup win, were the resurgent club. And the way they played, the attractiveness, the open style, attacking football, was what I had been following for quite some time. What what was what was the attraction to the club? Uh, I think exactly that the, the the way they play the football, the passion uh, and the style of football. Um, I'd always been an attacking forward myself, and um, I wanted to go to a team that sort of reflected my my way of playing. And what I enjoyed also was the fact when I, when I came to Main Road, was the passionate support that the City team had at Main Road. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Danny Stewart speaking to us there. Um, Gary, there's, there's no doubt he was an important player. He would actually go on to score the final trophy-winning goal before City's longest barren spell. So it, it was... And what a goal it was. Let's let's acknowledge that. Yeah, and, um, you know, after Rodney Marsh, he was definitely my, my next hero, really. And, you know, I loved Danny Stewart as a, as a player and, and he was incredible. And we always forget... Peter Barnes scored the first goal in a sense because it's so you know without that then Dennis might not have got his moment of glory but it was an incredible goal and he was certainly the sort of player to do that I think with Dennis with, with Dennis Stewart he just he was one of those players brought in who just added something because again that's that Merce Allison team was starting to break up and we'd start to lose our not not lose our way exactly but you know 73-74 season was not a great season for City um, and Stuart arrived and started, it was part of that 
transformation then from under Tony Buck it, it became after Don Saunders was sacked. He was part of that transformation in City's fortunes and, and was absolutely vital. Well, it was only five years later, uh, but City paid more than a million pounds for a player for the first time in September 1979. That's when they brought in Steve Daly for 1.4 million. In the years before, Paul Futcher and Michael Robinson had also been record signings, but this was the first time that City had spent a seven-figure sum on one player. A few years ago, I spoke to Steve Daly about the pressure that comes with that move. When I realised I was going to Manchester City and, and, and looked at the players that I was going to play with, you didn't see much pressure because they, they were having a good, decent run at the time, but when I signed on the Wednesday, unknown to me, the, the club sold four players. They sold Gary Owen, Ace Hartford, Peter Barnes and Mick Shannon. Uh, which obviously, if you're a fan, you're going to say, well, they've sold them four just to pay for him. And those four players basically were international players and they were, they were loved by the fans, you know. They were, they were icons at the football club and uh, I've come in as one player to replace the four of them. And uh, that proved very, very difficult at the time, to be honest with you. What was the fans' reaction? Um, they, they, to be fair, they, they, they were very, very good, but it, it just seemed the, the harder I tried, uh, the worse it became, you know. And maybe I started to try and do things uh, that would make up for a mistake I may have made and, and, and try, hard, try harder to, to make a 35, 40-yard pass that probably a five or six-yard pass would have done and look probably better, but... Uh, Coming for that sort of money, I was probably trying to impress more than I actually needed to. And as I say, the, the harder I tried, the, the, the worse it got. Did it hurt the way it kind of carried on and on and on all throughout your time at City? Oh, absolutely. Dear me, I've just said, it, it, it seems, honestly, it seems as, as though it was yesterday. I could remember everything and, uh, it, like I said, there was no one. So I've got a lot of pride in, in what I do and... Um, and I, it's nice to be liked and, and, uh, and appreciated, but like I said, the, the harder I tried, the worse it got. And there was nobody, literally, honestly, nobody more disappointed than me when it didn't work. If you had the chance, looking back at your career now, to, to change anything about that, would you, would you have still made that move to Manchester City? Yes, definitely. Uh, obviously, as you get older, you gain more experience. And there was, there was a few things I did wrong uh, at Manchester City and... and um, I should have, I should have, I should have stuck there and battled it out and shown, and shown basically a lot more character than I did, uh, and that will always, that will always hurt me and be in the back of my mind that uh, I maybe walked away a little bit too easy instead of fighting, fighting my corner, and 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 winning everybody over and, and doing the job that I was, I was brought in to do. Check out exclusive City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. That was Steve Daly uh, speaking to us there. Gary, was, is this, do you reckon this is the first time um, that a, a record transfer had weighed down on a player? Uh, yes. Well, mm, I, I mean, obviously, two, what was it, two years before that we signed Paul Futcher, and I'm not certain Paul Futcher was really the quality that we'd paid for. Um Older Blues may argue with me over that one, I, I guess. But, you know, Paul Futcher had cost us something like 350000 one year. Um, then Robinson had cost us about 750000 And then suddenly Steve Daly cost us £1.4 uh, um, And all of this within the space of, what was it, a year, two years at most. Um, so our transfer fee had gone from peanuts to being £1.4 Um And the day Steve Daly signed, I know I... I was delirious, as was probably most city fans. You know, that day, 
we were we were the biggest spenders in football. We it didn't matter. It didn't matter what other people did or whatever. We could buy any player we wanted to. That's how I felt. And I know we feel like that to some extent now, but this is how we felt in nineteen in the late seventies and certainly in nineteen seventy nine when Steve Daly signed. And I I didn't on the day he signed, you wouldn't think anything's gonna go wrong. And Steve Daly was a very talented player. And you know, he he, he was an England international and he was certainly on the verge of having what seemed like a great England career and then he signed for City and the the pressure must have been so intense on him you know I don't I, you know you, obviously you've interviewed him I, I've interviewed him over, over the years and he, he jokes about it quite a bit but he 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 got he got stick off not necessarily City fans initially but others because of the money that it costs so he was a target and then, of course, when he goes through his barren spell and he's not scored and, and everyone's saying, well, he's a waste of money. And we, we all know, because this has happened with so many players over the years, but City fans, in some ways, you have to sort of prove yourself. If you're, if you're a local player who gets into the first team, you seem to get a, a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. But if you're signing, you seem to be, you know, it seems to be us saying, well, come on, show us what you can do, right? And if you're a very expensive signing, the pressure is even more intense, and Steve Daly certainly suffered from that. And uh, I, 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 I sort of feel sorry for him really because it wasn't his fault. City paid that sort of money for him. Um, there's lots of stories as to why they paid that much. Um, Malcolm Allison at the time was absolutely adamant that he did the transfer, that he paid that money, that it was his signing. At the time, Malcolm Allison said that. Years later, Malcolm Allison claimed that he'd agreed £650,000 for a player, which I think is total rubbish because we'd paid thousand for, for Robinson uh, uh, you know, before that. I don't think that's true at all. And when I interviewed Peter Swales, Peter Swales said, Malcolm Allison wanted that player. I had to pay whatever they Wolves wanted. And if I hadn't have paid that money, Malcolm Allison could probably have walked, would probably have walked out the door. And so, ultimately, everyone blames everyone else for that transfer. But the real thing is that City could afford that transfer at the time, or seemingly could afford it, but it failed. As you mentioned uh, earlier in the show, uh, City City kind of stopped spending a lot of money for for a while in the, in the seventies and eighties. Um, Keith Curl was actually their next record uh, transfer signing. Uh, that was in nineteen ninety one. They spent two point five million pounds on him. Uh, here's what he told us about the move when we interviewed him last season. I think it was it was made easier by the manager at the time, uh, Peter Reid, who bought me. Uh, I think the the first conversations I had with him, as he said. Don't try and play like a, a two and a half million pound player. Just play uh, how you've played. This attracted the attention for ourselves to, to bring you. So we don't want anything different from you. Just do what you've been doing, um, and that's the responsibility that, uh, that, uh, that I had. How did the move come about from uh, from Wimbledon? Um, well, the got contacted through uh, through an agent who said that Manchester City were interested. Um, uh, I think the, the the original bidding started uh, below two million pound, um, and Wimbledon at the time wanted uh, well, they wanted more money because I was seen as an asset to them, uh, and it was then the persistence of Man City uh, to, to get me, and then also my desire to to go uh, from Wimbledon 
to, to, uh, to Manchester. Um, Wimbledon didn't want to sell me. Uh, I wanted to go uh, because I thought it was a fantastic opportunity to go and plan my trade uh, at a massive club. When you uh, when you arrived at City, obviously you mentioned it was it was Peter Reid was the manager. What what was he like as as uh, as a boss? Excellent. Um, again, slightly slightly different because I'd gone from a very uh, a very strict routine at Wimbledon. Um, people will say about uh, the Wimbledon style of play. Um, we came from a very competitive unit whereby we knew we didn't have the, the best players and for us to compete uh, at that level, we had to be organised and disciplined uh, in our play. So everything, uh, the preparations throughout the week uh, was always about stopping the opposition and uh, attacking the oppositions where we thought we had, they had weaknesses. Then, so again, the attention to detail was... Um, had to be accurate and had to be had to be implemented on the on the coaching field, uh, and everybody playing staff, coaching staff, bought into that. And the, the biggest difference was then when you came came to Man City, uh, they had naturally good players that were allowed the freedom to go and express themselves. So having that uh, that air of freedom of expression in your play, in your training, uh, in the build up uh, to the uh, to the, when you're playing games, uh, was a complete culture shock. Well, I was going to say that, that that must have suited you quite well because you you were quite you were quite happy to have the ball at your feet for a defender. Yeah, um, I was I was comfortable on the ball, uh, on the ball probably because of my upbringing. Uh, when I first started professional football, I was uh, a right winger. I made me debut for for Bristol Rovers as a a flying right winger. scored scored on me debut. Uh, went on to make a uh, hundred about hundred appearances as a as a left winger uh, or right winger. So I could handle a football. I could. Uh, I went on to play as a fullback uh, as well. I made me debut in the Premier League, or well, not the Premier League, in the, the first the old first division there uh, for Wimbledon. Uh, uh, as uh, as a left back, uh, and then went on to play a number of games left back, right back. Um, but my me, me chosen position was always going to be uh, centre back. It's uh, it's I mean it's one of those things where you you look back down the years. You actually you were you you were one of those characters that was that was quite kind of kind of galvanising for the team and, and confident to, uh, to to kind of have at the back four. Uh, I enjoyed my time there. Uh, played with some good players. Uh, I think when I first went into the team, I had uh, Steve Redmond, Colin Endry uh, as centre back partners. Uh, then went on to with uh, with Michael Vonk as well. Um, uh, yeah, um, and again, I think they were they were combative characters. Um, that gave me the freedom to go and express myself, and you know, they they did the horrible side of the game. I, I did the good bit. I got the ball down and, uh, and I played. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Keith Curl speaking to me there, and uh, we mentioned him a bit earlier on as well. Uh, after Curl was Lee Bradbury, the next record transfer. Uh, he was three million pounds from Portsmouth, uh, and Gary, it just it just never worked for him at City at all. Did it? I mean, his his nickname was Lee Bad Boy by the fans. I know it was just it's, it was another Steve Daly really wasn't it you know I, actually not even as good as Steve Daly Steve Daly had, had, you could tell Steve Daly was a quality player it didn't seem to work out for Brad, Lee Bradbury I almost said bad by then <laughs> Lee Bradbury um, it's yeah and it came at that time when we were starting to well it was more than starting to feel let down we were being let down by by the way things were going at City and so it wasn't it wasn't a good one and when you consider in the years, sort of in between, sort of Steve Daly and um, Lee Bradbury signing, we'd spent a couple of million pound on people like Trevor. We'd spent a million pound on Trevor Francis and Kevin Reeves, and Kevin Reeves was a good player. And then it was years before we bought Clive Allen for a million. Um, 
And then we bought, like you said, Keith Curl. We also bought Terry Phelan. So these players that were worth a million pound or more, or a couple of million pound, if you look at most of them, they're highly regarded by City fans. You know, Terry Phelan, Keith Curl, Clive Allen and so on. You know, they were great players. Lee Bradbury, as far as City fans were concerned, just wasn't. He just wasn't up to the job. And again, I think that transfer fee played on him because although it sounds like peanuts today, for City at that time, that was an enormous amount of money. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about City playing catch-up. Um, it was kind of kind of the Kevin Keegan years where the, where the money was, was uh, spent a lot with a lot more freedom. Uh, and I guess it's a, a kind of a sign of how football was valued that it became a list of strikers for a long while after, after Bradbury. Uh, there was Paolo Wanchop, he came in for £3.65 million. Uh, it was then John Macken, signed by Kevin Keegan for £5 million in February 2002. Uh, I asked John Macken recently what it was like when he joined uh, Keegan City. You know you're going to get chances to score goals and uh, obviously... I did do that when I when I come in when I first come in, uh, and obviously that's so many great players at the time. It was it's all, it always helps when you got good players around you as well. Yeah. What are your memories of that team? I just, just know it was a very good team. You know, uh, we had some fantastic players. You know, we easily could have been playing well, would have been playing in the champion in the Premiership, sorry, and uh, and and doing well in the in the Premiership as well. So uh, it was it was all geared up really to to get promotion and and then stay in the league. Yeah. Does it help, uh, certainly as a striker, does it help to settle when uh, a team's scoring a lot of goals and they're, they're, you know, the, the next season, does it make it easier in the Premier League? Well, it does because you know you're going to create chances and, uh, and that's what we did. You know, we created a lot of chances and we scored a lot of goals the season we went up. But uh, like I say, we went up into the Premier League, you know, a few new additions and, and you, you basically you know, try your best and, and try and stay in the division, I suppose, but try and push on and, and achieve things. <laughs> Get involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was John Macken uh, speaking to us about uh, his arrival at, uh, at Main Road. Uh, Keegan then also broke the record the following summer to bring in another striker when he was preparing for the Premier League. It was the first time City had spent double figures in terms of million pounds. It was thirteen million on Nicholas Anelka. Uh, we spoke to him at City Square last season, so uh, you'll have to forgive the background noise. There's quite a bit of it, but you can hear what he's got to say. This time, uh, Ali Benabia was there. So I think uh, he convinced me more than uh, Kevin, but because Kevin was there, also I know he was a striker, a very good striker, one of the best, and I wanted to, to, to work with him. So the combination of uh, Ali and, uh, and Kevin made me uh, sign here. What was, what was it like arriving at a, a club that had just been promoted? It was a bit strange for me because, you know, uh, I came from uh, Liverpool, uh, but, you know, I, I knew I had to do the, the stuff on the pitch, you know, at this level, you have to do it. You have to be focused and give everything. This is and this is exactly what I did. When in one of your first games, you scored a hat trick against uh, Everton. Yeah. That, that helped you settle down. Well, it's always good to uh, to start when uh, I needed it because you know uh, it's, a, it's when I, when you are new in the club and you and you you've been, you have, you've been for a big signing. It's a lot of pressure and you need to to be good on the pitch. And it was very good to uh, to score three goals, of course. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Nicholas and Elka speaking to us there. Um, Gary, it's hardly a surprise, is it, that, that Kevin Keegan was breaking the transfer record for City? He's got a bit of a reputation. <laughs> yeah, and we, need, and we needed to, really, didn't we? I mean, we needed to catch up. Um, so he needed to spend that money. And Elka was a, a, an incredible player, really. I, I do wonder what, what he would have achieved for City if he'd have played in a... 
you know, just a few years later. For a better when, team. <laughs> when, yeah, when it's a, a better team. Um, but having said that, you know, some of the other teams he played for were, were better than City, but he still didn't, he still wasn't quite the player perhaps he, he should have been really. But but for City, I thought it was fantastic. It, de- it, it definitely player. didn't. It, it definitely did feel like a step up in terms of uh, the, the class of player City was signing at that time, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it felt back to back to those days from years before, you know, from the seventies, really. But we could sign players that were were genuine quality and and were going to improve our team. You know, for for years we'd been signing players who who would sort of maintain the standard. Uh, but he would def- definitely step up. Well, no, to be fair, we had, we'd, under Joe Royal and under Kevin Keegan initially, we had to sign players who were going to get out, get us out of the division. Um, so inevitably, you're going to buy whoever you can get to to get you out of that division. But but once we we you know an Elka signed, it did feel as if this was a quality Premier League player, and this is somebody who will help City <laughs> maybe not find success, but but get close to it. Yeah, a piece of trivia on the Anelka signing as well. Technically, although he was on loan at Liverpool the season before, uh, he's technically the first player that City have broken their transfer record for for an overseas from an overseas team because he was a he was a PSG player um, uh, on loan course, at Liverpool. Yeah. yeah. Um, the final signing before the Sheikh Mansour era to break City's record was uh, was Joe. Uh, he was again, let's say, put it kindly, not really a success at City, was he? No, but it's, it is interesting, and and I know people sort of, sort of debate um, where the money came from and all this sort of stuff. But it's interesting that this was still under taxing. This was under taxing Shinawatra's reign at, at City, and to be fair to taxing Shinawatra, he did say he would buy players, and he also was convinced that he had the money himself. His assets got frozen whilst he was chairman of City, so you know. His ambition when he first took over City may have been um, to create a, an incredible club or recreate an incredible club or whatever and suspend money. Um, but clearly, once his assets got froze, it was difficult. Um, but Joe, yeah, I mean, I think he was probably eclipsed by what came because it was so close to it, wasn't it? That I think what, what followed just sort of overshadowed anything that Joe would ever do really yeah it was it was only a couple of months later City went and uh, and splashed the cash on uh, on Rubinho and that was after the Sheikh Mansour takeover um, exactly. it, it yeah. was 32 and a half million which is you know all of a sudden uh, they've paid so much money for a player um do you remember your reaction when you found out that Rubinho had signed oh well it was it was it was the drama wasn't it of the entire day because I I was at the time I had set up the museum at City, so I was actually at the ground uh, on transfer deadline day, two thousand eight. So there was all the drama of the, the takeover, but alongside that were the rumours of who we were going to buy. And the very first one, which we, we we tend to forget now, but the very first one was that Mike Lowen was coming to City. And to be fair, at that point, I'd have probably been happy with that because that seemed okay. <laughs> at the time, it seemed okay. Then it became Berbatov. And then it was Berbatov all day, really, until late on. Um, you know, I was I remember being sat at home watching the, just watching Sky Sports News over and over, just watching it all basically run through. Um, and suddenly it's Rubinho. Suddenly it's Rubinho. And it, it, it just, it was incredible for me. Um, I, I know there's all this stuff about Rubinho perhaps thought he'd sign for Chelsea or whatever I think most that's rubbish really you know people slip people slip up when they say it's nice to be at Chelsea or City or whatever you know those things happen don't they Um, but Rubinho it was it was like 
it was it was it was like those days in the late seventies when City suddenly were able to spend one and a half million pounds on a player. I mean, I do remember feeling immensely. I mean, it's it, just the excitement of the day, but immensely proud of the fact that we could buy Rubinho. And Rubinho was a a, a superb player. Um, he, he gets a, a bit of a bad press from from some uh, because people don't think he delivered what he should have done. But but if you think back to that season. Again, there's a big mix in quality of players. You know, you've suddenly got players who really can play at their highest international, on the highest international stage, and then you've got others who were struggling to play in the Premier League. To be frank, um, but he was just, yeah, he was he was superb, and and maybe again in a better team at that point, we'd be talking about him as one of our biggest stars. Maybe I don't yeah, know. could have been could have been so much uh, different if he'd been at a, at a little bit of different era. Um, the next time that, that City broke the record, it was again for another South American. Uh, it was Sergio Aguero, who reported £38 million from Atletico Madrid. Um, assuming that this season is finished and his goals for this season count, Gary, um, who do you think has been cheaper per goal scored, uh, Sergio Aguero or Lee Bradbury? <laughs> um, oh, it's got to be Aguero, surely. Uh, surely. It's, don't, it, don't tell me it's Bradbury. <laughs> well, it's absolutely mad because, bear in mind, City paid £38 million for Aguero. He's got 254 goals, which works out at about £149,000 a goal that he's that he's cost City. Uh, Bradbury got 11 goals, which works out at 272000 So, uh, Sergio Aguero has been better value for money than Lee Bradbury has. <laughs> um, there's an argument, isn't there, that uh, Aguero is, is City's best ever record signing, isn't there? Absolutely. Um, well, you know, he's, he's our record goal scorer. Um, he's won all the trophies he's won. Um, he's been the inspiration sometimes for some of our key victories. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, if you, if you thought about record transfers, there's him and then Francis Lee are the two big ones. Got to be, really, because, you know, if you turn it about in terms of what they delivered for City, um, other players, like we've talked about, Oris Barnes and so on, they delivered, but obviously City didn't win the, the amount of trophies that they, they did win um, with those. Um, so, yeah, it's good. I, I, yeah. I, there's, there's a slight doubt in my mind that it should, that Frenny Lee should, it should be Frenny Lee, but, but no, uh, you know, Frenny Lee, and I'll tell you why the doubt is, because Francis Lee won a European trophy uh, at City, and we haven't yet done that, but that's not the player's fault. That's the club, you know, that's the club as a whole, really, isn't it? Um, but Aguero, in terms of all the records, in terms of what he's achieved, in terms of likability and everything else that goes with being a star footballer, then, of course, Aguero is our greatest one. It's got to be. The weird thing about his transfer is, you know, when, when City break the record in, in, in recent years, you, you talk about Sterling from Liverpool or De Bruyne from Wolfsburg, even Laporte from Athletic Bilbao and Mares from Leicester. A lot of people go, well, he's, it's a lot of money for a player of that sort. Like £54 million for for De Bruyne. I mean, I wouldn't pay... I remember hearing stories, I wouldn't pay that much for De Bruyne. £44 million, I wouldn't pay that for Sterling. You know, £60 million. Mares isn't worth £60 million. It's gone crazy. It's it's daft, but I don't remember hearing any of those stories about Aguero. Is, it, is that because he, he arrived at City and made such an immediate impact, do you think? I think so. I mean, basically, he... As far as the world is concerned, he was the man who won the title that year, isn't he? You know, he, he joins the club and then wins the title. So you can't argue against that sort of development. You know, if Steve Daly had done that, he'd still be a hero, wouldn't he? You know? <laughs> um, so, so I think that I think that's the point. It's a bargain, and the, the point is that with any of these players, I mean, 
a club pays what they think a player is worth. Otherwise, they don't sign that player. Um, and sometimes players don't perform. Sometimes players get injured, whatever happens. But when you look at Aguero, he's delivered every single season. And even when he's had a what what some would say was a, a sort of bad run of form, he's still better than most other players in the league. You know, so so it's 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 he's, he's been incredible. And um, of course, players like if you think about it, players like De Bruyne and Sterling in another what five six years we might be talking about those in the same sort of way of course because who knows what they're going to achieve in the next few years you know there could be all sorts of stuff well I'm, I'm not going to lie Gary I, I already think given what both have done for City I already think both of them have been bargains well I do you know I, I, I tend to think unless a player you know unless we're talking about Steve Daly or Lee Bradbury or someone like that um, it's difficult to say that, if, that some of these record signs have failed really because with almost every player that's been mentioned has achieved, has achieved something you know Lee Bradbury didn't Steve Daly didn't but most of the others have done um, or, or City sold them on at a profit you know Dennis Law was sold for a massive amount you know it, it, it was almost double what City had actually paid for him and that would you know that had been a record so so even if they've not delivered most of these have moved on for a bigger fee for ones the ones that um, we sort of remember generation after generation are truly great footballers like Francis Lee and, and Aguero will never, ever be forgotten. And, and De Bruyne will never be forgotten. And Sterling, like you say, has achieved so much for City um, in in spite of all the abuse we've got. I also think that it, it, it depends on where the players have come from um, and also whether other teams have, tr- have have had that play before. So obviously De Bruyne had his, his sort of spell at, uh, you know, with Chelsea, if you like, um, and Sterling the, was the Liverpool time. So that I think that played a part in their perception before they joined Sitter, um, whereas Aguero wasn't, didn't have that baggage that perhaps, you know, he didn't have any English baggage, if you like. Uh, so I think that plays its part too. So uh, a nice little bit of trivia to to finish on, Gary. Um, uh, just off the top of your head, can you think who might be uh, City's uh, player who is the record signing, but for the shortest amount of time? Because uh, they've they've broken the transfer record again. You know, very soon after breaking it once. Uh, well, in uh, the sort of seventy nine, there was Michael Robinson signing um, for what was it, seven hundred fifty thousand, something like that, um, and that was. I've got I've got the date there. So twenty fifth of June seventy nine, and then Steve Daly signed on the fifth September. So what's that? Two two months and a week, yeah, something just like over, that. Yeah. And w- so go on, tell me, is, is there anyone quicker than that? Well, I think Raheem Sterling uh, will clock in at, at shorter because he signed in July twenty fifteen, and De Bruyne signed in August twenty fifteen. De Bruyne was the very end of the transfer window, um, so that that's come that comes in at about a month and a half. Yeah, you yeah you. Good, you, you got me there. That's 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 got to be true, has it? It's got to be that one. So it'll be Sterling, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be Sterling. But one thing I would say about the Michael Robinson transfer was that he was about seven hundred fifty thousand, and Steve Daly was one point four five, whatever it was, a you know, million. So it it almost doubled. Um, so I, I'm trying to think now. How, how did that compare to the Sterling? Uh, transferred. Uh, well, still, uh, De Bruyne was only ten, uh, only, only ten million pounds more than uh, more yeah. than Raheem Sterling. So, yeah. I mean, can you can you imagine? Because I, I, you know, I sort I sort of lived through it. But can you imagine how we felt in in seventy nine when one minute you sign? Well, we, first of all, we we signed Futcher for three hundred fifty thousand one one year, 
The next year, we suddenly bought uh, Michael Robinson, who was barely known at the time, for 750000 And then suddenly it's one almost £1.5 million pound for Steve Daly. And it's like doubling it. I mean, it, it'd be incredible if we did that now. And, know, I, bet, and I bet people back then were saying, I can't believe that. It, it's, got to, it's got to end sometime. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there was actually a programme in, in around about 81 or 80, something like that. There's a programme on about... Um, these million pound footballers are ruining football. And it, it was it was a Granada TV sort of debate, and Peter Swales was on it, and I think Martin Edwards from Manchester United really. And um, and Swales was boasting, saying, "Oh, it's going to carry on forever." This we we we're proud, and he said something like, "We we are the first club to have signed three separate one million pound players," which we were. You know, we signed Daly, Reeves, and and. Uh, Trevor Francis um, all in the space of about two years really but we'd signed those players and he was proud of the fact but we, we'd been able to spend that money what none of us knew at the time was how much debt he was putting us into yeah, well, uh, well, how times change eh? in, uh, in in every way. Um, that's it for today's Blue Moon Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed it, then please head over to Apple Podcasts and give it a rating and a review. And you can do that also wherever you listen to the show. If you've not enjoyed it, then just forget what I said that in that last bit there and just carry on with your day in a nice way. Um, special thanks to my guest this week, Gary James. Thanks. Uh, Gary and me have recently launched a brand new set of City videos as well. There's one a week and it's every Wednesday. They're all about interesting aspects of City history. Gary, where can, where can people find out more? about uh, about that yeah it's on uh, a service called Patreon so uh, if you go on patreon.com slash city folklore you'll find out more or if you just check out at mine or David's uh, Twitter you'll, you'll get the details yeah uh, if you'd like some more Blue Moon podcasts then you can sign up to our Patreon page as well uh, this week's bonus show is me and Gary talking about pitch invasions in all their different forms down the years uh, that's an extract from one of our upcoming uh, city folklore videos so uh, you can have a little bit of a taster of what's on city folklore there as well uh, join me again next week I'll see you then take care that was the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast